Beginning of December 2022, Perfect Day launched its first precision fermentation milk, available in Asian supermarkets. It contains the whey milk protein produced in a bioreactor instead of a cow. The product is cholesterol-free, hormone-free and low in sugar and saturated fat. The Perfect Day cow-free milk is as identical to conventional milk as possible, but at the molecular level it's still not the same. So in this episode you will find out why it's hard to recreate conventional dairy milk and what technology may come after precision fermentation. Something we will call cells as machinery or cell-based milk. To look into the future, you will hear from Turtle Tree CSO Aletta Schnitzler. Turtle Tree develops dairy bioactives, so recreates parts of milk that are probiotic or have other health benefits. The bioactives can be added to plant-based products or to infant formula to make it more nutritious. But in parallel, they are also looking at the moonshot solution of using glands to produce milk. So you would grow the glands and give them the necessary nutrients and the environment to work as little milk machines. We will clarify how exactly this is possible in a few minutes. Cell-based milk is some of the craziest stuff I have come across in researching biotech in food. So I hope you will enjoy this as much as I did. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Let's start out with what Turtle Tree is working on right now, which are bioactive proteins in milk, something called lactoferrin. So these are components of milk that offer not only a nutritional component, so there are major proteins like casein and the whey proteins, but there are also other components of milk that play other roles, not just to provide carbohydrates and proteins, but also help us defend ourselves against detrimental bacteria, for example. And lactoferrin is one of those bioactive components. So it's not one of the major proteins in terms of concentration in milk. It's actually one of the minor proteins, but it has these other activities. For example, I mentioned being antimicrobial, but it Almost paradoxically, it can also support beneficial bacteria in the gut, like bifidobacteria. It also is an iron regulator, so it binds and transports iron, as well as plays a role in regulation of the inflammatory process. So not only do we get as infants lactoferrin through breast milk from the mammary gland of the mother, but lactoferrin is also produced in immune cells in our own bodies. Yeah, so let's maybe draw a bit of a distinction between companies that may seem similar. Helena is using precision fermentation. Biomilk is using cells as machinery, tissue engineering technology, and they are both focused on human breast milk or ingredients, bioactive proteins from human breast milk. But you are focused on dairy milk. Yes, we are first focused on bovine lactoferrin, as well as I would say a distinction is our short-term focus is on adult applications. So again, providing this as an ingredient to a wide range of foods as a dietary supplement for adults. And one can imagine fortifying even plant-based dairy products that are presently devoid of lactoferrin. It's, again, whether it's 
um, to supplement almond milk or in yogurts to fortify other kind of dairy and also non-dairy products. Interesting. In a talk with Larissa Zimbaroff, we were looking at the health claims of the biotech industry. And she was arguing, we are breaking everything down into individual ingredients. Then we are also consuming certain ingredients in way higher percentages if we just extract it or if we produce it with precision and fermentation. And suddenly we eat this small bit of protein that usually would be present only as 3% of an egg or in dairy in way higher quantities. And she was questioning how useful that is, right? With an iron supplement is not as good as eating some spinach with some lemon on it or on top. So how would you respond to that? I think that there is a strong role for fortification within our food system. One example that comes to mind is folic acid and also iodine, actually. There are regions of the world where some of these very important, critical, essential elements and amino acids and proteins aren't as readily available. And it can have severe impacts on the mother, on the infant, on people's health. And fortification in our food system has been a really critical part of maintaining a health of our population, even on a global level. So I don't think that supplementation is a bad thing or counter to anything that we're trying to do in terms of supporting nutrition as society. And different people have different dietary needs, they have different access, they have different background genetics. There are a lot of different reasons why we might want a bit more supplementation, a bit more access to some of these really beneficial molecules. You know, I gave the iodine and folic acid as an example, but just think about vitamin supplements, especially during maternity or for other reasons, or vegetarians maybe not getting quite as much access to some of the B vitamins or iron. So I think there's a place for it. I know that a lot of you truly care for the environment. The leading VC Food Labs is teaming up with their sister fund Atlantic Labs to launch a Founders for Climate program. This is an entrepreneur-in-residence program for climate-focused founders in Europe. You receive pre-seed funding for your incorporated company, mentoring and advisory, and access to their network, which includes over 150 portfolio companies. By the way, the precision fermentation startup Formo, that we featured in season one and season three, was founded by an entrepreneur in residence at Food Labs. You will find more info on their climate and food-focused programs at foodlabs.com. If you or someone you know wants to found or is founding a climate venture, check out foodlabs.com. Foodlabs.com. It's interesting how the lines between pharmaceutical application, supplementation and food are blurry in the area of functional foods. Where do you see your application, right? Where is lactopharin in there? Because it's somewhere between food and supplement, right? But where would you get into the pharmaceutical application? What would make it a pharma product? Yeah, it is an important distinction and it can be challenging to navigate this. And of course, this is looking heavily into the regulatory environment of any given geography, and that will be different country to country. Regulatory, whether you're talking pharma, food, nutraceutical supplements, is complex. We are engaging with a, a series of consultants as well as direct conversations with the FDA to navigate these waters and ensure that we are making safe products and effective products 
and not overstating any of the claims. One really good example is cranberry juice. The claim that cranberry juice can prevent the recurrence of urinary tract infections would be more like a drug claim because you're saying that it is preventing or curing a disease state. But if the claim is that cranberry juice helps maintain urinary tract health, that could be allowed on conventional food or dietary supplement. Um, if it's truthful, it's not misleading, there is research behind that, and it derives from that nutritional value of the cranberries. So it really has to do with what you're claiming the function of that molecule is relative to maintaining health versus curing a disease. Yeah. So let's look at the technological part. You're right now working with precision fermentation, but you do intend to create future products based off tissue engineering, or as we discussed, like cell assist machinery. Why would you prospectively like to get into that field? Sure. So that's getting to more the full complement of what mammary gland cells can do. As you can imagine, milk is very complex mixture of, and we've already talked about some of the proteins, the bioactive proteins, bulk proteins, but also vitamins, minerals, and oligosaccharides. And all of this is made from the mammary gland epithelial cells and the luminal cells. Milk fat globules is another complex part of milk. It's actually fatty acids and fat globules that are encapsulated by a cell membrane, and that's what's in the milk product. So there's a lot of value to nature's balance in terms of all of those ingredients and how they're secreted. So yeah, milk is complex. Most precision fermentation companies create a specific part. They're working on casein and whey protein, and then they add other plant-based ingredients to make it into cheese or dairy milk. And voila, you have a cheese with natural milk protein without a cow. But to make something that is much more identical to animal milk is very challenging if you only use precision fermentation. And that's why the cells as machinery approach could be the future. You could call this cell-based milk, but if you compare it to how meat is created by proliferating the cells and then actually eating the cells, eating the meat itself, this is slightly different. If we look at the process of plastic tissue engineering, like it's used for cell-based mm. meat or as we call it, cultivated or cultured meat, it's a little bit different than what you're doing because usually you take a biopsy, you choose a certain cell line and then this cell line is proliferated in a bioreactor with certain nutrients and growth factors. But for you, the actual cells are not the end product. So where does this differ? How is like the middle step different? Yes. And actually in the cell-based milk um, product and process, the cells are basically the factory by which to make a secreted product is more in alignment um, with biopharma presently. You're using a cell to generate and secrete those products. That's similar to fermentation as well. Again, the biomass, the bacterial cells are removed once the culture process is done and the target products are isolated away. In the case of cell-based milk, there are a couple of challenges that the industry is working on. One, the mammary gland epithelial cells and the mammary duct is a complex environment and it's multiple cell types that are together to support that process. There's a mechanical stimulation involved as well. So getting the right culture environment is important. So we need more than one type of gland, a little cell orchestra 
that would produce the whole thing, lactose, fat protein and minerals, including the bioactive proteins that have their benefits. The Australian-based startup Vow Foods, spelled V-O-W, argued that we eat certain animal products not because they are the best for us, but because they are the most easily domesticated. And that's likely true. So they're currently producing Japanese umai quail, the meat of a beautiful bird, without harming any. If you apply this logic to the dairy space, who knows? There may be a startup creating wolf or red panda milk soon. It's undoubtedly harder to domesticate a pack of wolves than to domesticate a couple of cows. So cow's milk may get some serious competition once that is out of the way. As we learned in the previous episodes, the difference in many of these technologies is the production mechanism. Sometimes the microbes are the product, as in biomass fermentation, or the microbes are used as machinery to produce the product, as in precision fermentation. In this case, similar to precision fermentation, we want the end product, the milk produced by the glands, but the setup is a bit different. In biologics manufacturing or fermentation, the cells are together in the same culture medium as where the product is being secreted, and then that product is purified out in the downstream process. Whereas in the case of cell-based milk, we'd like to maintain more of a separation between the nutrients that we provide and the dairy milk that is secreted out. And that will require innovation around that process and the technology and the bioreactors that are used to do that. There is one bioreactor modality called hollow fibers that currently creates that kind of divide between where the nutrients come in and where a product is secreted out. And that's one potential way that cell-based milk manufacturers could achieve that kind of separation. That's something that we continue to work on. That sounds very complex to separate that from the get-go. Can you maybe describe the principle of how it's working? Because in, in my head, it would look like a bunch of little chicken, like the cells are little chicken and they're being fed at the top and then they, they let go of an egg towards the bottom. But that, that's probably not reality. <laughs> I, I, I wish I had... Um... I wish I had a diagram I could show you, but again, hollow fiber is something um, that technology is already used in various industries. So it's basically using a membrane to separate a feed stream and the cells from what is being excreted out. But it allows the cells to bind and create like a ductal structure. Because you imagine the mammary gland has the cells and the blood vasculature and the tissue on one side, and then it's excreting into a duct. That's exactly what hollow fiber is trying to mimic. My joking chicken-egg analogy is not that far off. Uber simplified, imagine you have a vertical membrane. On the left side, there is a bunch of chicken. They float in a liquid containing their food and hold themselves with their claws attached to the membrane. The eggs they lay are small enough to shoot through the membrane to the right, while the chicken stay on the left. Now replace the chicken with mammary glands and the eggs with milk components, which should explain it easier. As we will mention later, this process works for specific cell types that are more adhesive and like sticking on surfaces. Otherwise, it would be more similar to precision fermentation, where you need downstream processing to separate the chicken from the eggs. I mean, the microbes from the product, you know, you know what I mean. And you were saying that you need several glands, right? Uh, so you were mentioning you, were, you need several cells 
right? How do you make that happen? So support cells can often provide growth factor signals. So prolactin, for example, is very important in the lactation process. Other growth factors, other nutrients, as well as adhesion molecules. We use a lot of industry jargon here. Therefore, I will summarize and clarify some things. So we keep talking about mammary glands. If you think of a female cow, the udder hanging down from the cow's body consists of two or four mammary glands. We are trying to make this process happen outside of a cow. So we need to replicate as much of the natural environment as possible. Producing milk requires growth factors. They're usually proteins or steroid hormones that trigger cells to grow help with wound healing and sometimes help with cell differentiation. Cell differentiation means that growth factors help cells choose their career path to specialize in one function. These growth factors, adhesion molecules, etc. must be part of the system and for example they can be added to the scaffold, the platform on which the cells grow. They can also be part of the growth medium, the nutrient liquid surrounding the cells. Or, and that's interesting, growth factors and adhesion molecules could be produced by support cells. But growing support cells adds more complexity, which is why the other two options may be more straightforward. And I think the trick here will be to understand what are those critical elements and can we provide them not from a different cell type, but by giving them a coded scaffold on which to bind, for example, that has that adhesion molecule. Can we provide the prolactin just through through the culture medium and not have another cell sitting there and making that? So it's really about thinking about what are the essential biological inputs and how can we do this at a more industrial process? In the short term, we might not get the full complement of milk. Maybe it's a couple of key constituents or um, the milk fat globules, for example, that are much more complex than just creating a single protein through fermentation. But in the beginning, I think we should try to keep it simple um, because co-cultures can be quite challenging um, at large scale. If we can do this through some other mechanisms that I just mentioned, um, that might be a more ideal state. I find it interesting because you use you use a methodology that allows to have more complex outputs, whereas precision fermentation, as you said, like it needs to be a very, very specific ingredient and isolate. This can actually be a mix. And again, that goes back to the point of actually reducing ingredientization potentially and creating more whole foods, semi-whole yeah. at least. Exactly, exactly. And whole fiber is just one example. It's something that's used in industry now. But I do think that this is going to require further innovation and likely completely different technologies and culture modalities. Can this be used for precision fermentation? And is it being used? I'm not sure that it would be an advantage in precision fermentation. It is more amenable to cells that are adherent dependent to bind onto one side of that membrane and then secrete through the membrane. And it also is good for, again, cells that can't be adapted to suspension where you can then scale up in large stir tank bioreactors and microbes are already very good at doing that. The one area that I see on precision fermentation that's used 
in the industry on the animal cell side, it's not as highly leveraged on the precision fermentation side is continual processing and perfusion. So that is something that fermentation industry, especially for these kinds of biologics, should and is looking into a bit more. And that's basically, if you're not aware of what perfusion is, is a technique to concentrate the biomass and in a continual way, pull off your product to allow the reaction to go longer without having to stop the reaction, shut down the batch, clean everything out and start up again. So it's a way to extend your process window and increase your yields. Each episode takes many dozens of hours of work. Please share Red to Green with your colleagues on Slack, Discord, or Teams. Or share one of your favorite takeaways on LinkedIn and link to the episode in the comments. To switch a bit back to more general questions, I've heard a couple of times now that creating milk as the actual drinkable product is much harder, supposedly, than creating cheese. Why is that the case? This probably has to just do with the complexity and the, the proteins that are needed. So for example, the, the cheese is using casein and is really relying on that protein to get that, that stretching factor. And the way proteins are basically discarded, whereas milk, you need all of those together. That's the starting point. There's a ton of fractionation that happens for all of these other kinds of dairy products, but it all starts with milk, which is the most complex. So just to make sure, after rennet is added to the milk and it curdles, you say that pretty much is the cheese is an intensification of certain proteins like casein, and then the rest goes out. And the rest that goes out is what would make it hard to create milk because then it's much more complex. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And do you drink milk yourself? I do. Yeah, I think it's very nutritious. Okay, so. What do you think about people's thesis that one should just stop drinking milk, eating animal products for sustainability? I absolutely see why that concept is there because of the impact that the dairy industry and the cattle industry, especially, we've been having this conversation for a long time, for decades. And I don't think, unfortunately, that it's practical or reasonable to expect a vast majority of the population to change their eating habits, unfortunately, right or wrong. I don't see that we're making much headway in that regard. We need an alternative. And that's exactly what cell culture and um, precision fermentation offer is being able to have access to these animal proteins and bioactives with processes that are more sustainable and hopefully can move the needle on the environmental issues that we're facing. Regarding the health question, right? Some may argue, well, the hormones in milk are too detrimental and compared to maybe some of the benefits. How do you see that balance? Yeah, and that's exactly one of the potential benefits of precision fermentation is, again, being able to control that process more in terms of the safety of the process and the components that go into it. Again, we're trying to be part of the solution without what I think is an unrealistic expectation to just stop the dairy industry completely and turn to a purely plant-based diet. I just don't think that's realistic, unfortunately. But milk in general is quite a commodity product. So even if you would then be able to scale the technology, would you try to then go after the conventional consumer with a proper turtle tree milk carton or how would it look like? So our business model in the short term is 
B2B. So we would like to make ingredients that will be incorporated into a variety of foods. In the longer term, it could be more of a a B2C. We're starting with adult nutrition, again, unlocking a range of food products that I cited earlier. But we're also interested in infant nutrition because especially for something like lactoferrin, we see that there is a lot of benefit. There are studies in infants showing that benefit. And about 80% of lactoferrin is used in infant formula, but globally, only 5% of formula has lactoferrin. So there is certainly a need and opportunity to be able to make more lactoferrin beyond what the current um, dairy industry can produce um, because they have limits too. Lactoferrin is quite, again, a low concentration component of milk. So beyond what the dairy industry can currently strip out of milk, we'd like to add to that and provide more lactoferrin for those other kinds of products as well. So also infant nutrition in the future. So what are the timelines like? With precision fermentation, it will be sooner, most likely. But then I guess the further you get into the future, the harder it is to predict, of course. How much of your R&D budget are you now already investing in using this more cells-focused approach? And Mm -hmm. when will you expect to have a B2B product for both of these categories? Sure. Taking a step back, yes, we in the short term are very focused on bringing lactoferrin to the adult market. Just finishing up validation experiments on our entry strain in the grams per liter titer, which is very exciting. And we'll be tech transferring that to um, CMO partner in early next year toward generating the runs, the bioreactor, the fermenter runs for our FDA filing. And we expect the letter of no objection toward the latter half of 2023 for market entry toward the end of 2023. Beyond that, you're right, the cone of uncertainty, if you will, certainly widens as timelines get pushed out. But we continue to work on the cell-based. We have multiple stem cell biology, bioprocessing scientists that that are working on induction of lactation and thinking about what that commercial scale manufacturing can look like, as well as on the fermentation side, setting ourselves up to have a platform and be able to deliver on a pipeline of products beyond lactoferrin that leverage fermentation as well. Did you ever consider doing human breast milk? And if not, why? Yeah, um, so we have. We have considered doing both human breast milk as human lactoferrin. It would be an amazing state if the technology can mature to the point where we could even biopsy a struggling mother, a new mother, for whatever reason, can't breastfeed and and create her own breast milk. I do see that as a very future state. It's not dissimilar to what cell therapies and stem cell therapies has gone through over the decades. That's called autologous cell therapy, where you're basically being treated with a variation of your own cells. And it's complex technology. It's complex biology. I hope we get there someday, but it's certainly not our immediate focus. So we're talking about dairy, 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 cows, cows, cows. But what about human breast milk? What about infant formula that really focuses on the human milk ingredients? Helena uses precision fermentation to create bioactive proteins to add to human infant formula, focusing on those that are actually made naturally by human mothers. And biomilk, written with a Q, uses cells as machinery to create human breast milk. How do you stay up to date? There's so much going on. You are CSO of a company that dabbles in two major topics and there's so much happening in the space. 
Again, really talented support team as well on the communication and market intelligence side, just very engaged scientists that we have. And we meet across these teams. So the fermentation experts meet together with the cell biologists. And what I love about this is that everyone is bringing such different perspectives and we create a culture of questions. Sometimes when you're too focused on your one area, you make assumptions and you may dismiss something in your own mind because, oh, I haven't seen it before or that's not going to work. But someone coming in from a different perspective or a different field will ask those questions and get you thinking. And so it really drives a lot of creativity discussion and I think helps fuel our innovation cycle. So it might, yes, look, wow, how are we handling fermentation and cell-based? But it's exciting because it allows for a bit of cross-training as well as just sharing of different ideas that you might not get if you're only focused on one particular thing. Sometimes in Germany, we call it Betriebsblindheit. If you would translate it, it would be operational blindness. And ah, that yeah. very much describes uh, the state of being so close to a topic that you really cannot read the letters on the paper because you just hold it right on front of your face. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, sometimes you have to see the forest through the trees, right? Yeah. And I'm, I, I just had this like funny idea, which wouldn't work because investors uh, would boycott it. It's really necessary to have more information flow within the industry. Yes. And because of the IP protection, that can be very hard, especially between competitors. But then yep. maybe at least you could make a little fun program between cell-based and precision fermentation companies and just buddy them up yeah. <laughs> and recreate what you're having within your company. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Marina, because I completely agree with that concept that in order to really accelerate this industry, we need more dialogue between companies, not only between startups, but also between established food companies and startups, as well as the research organizations. And very importantly, which where I see the U.S. lagging behind a bit is engagement from policymakers and support with government funding. It's coming a bit, but it's really not enough. I really hope that we can switch our mindset a little bit where there is a greater appetite for not only risk sharing, but also reward sharing, right? Because I think that can really accelerate things. Having these startups trying to develop everything in secret behind closed doors is not the way to accelerate. We need to have open discussions and have support from investors and from government to facilitate those open discussions where we can find that pre-competitive space where we can work on problems together or again, come together, partner and, and share the risk and reward. Yeah. I recently had a talk at the Food Hack offsite with somebody mm -hmm. about the fact that in the pharma space, there are much more labs which are just funded by corporations just to research some kind of bacteria, microbe ingredient and look for potential applications for the space, which creates this potential for random inventions. But in the food industry, we are missing that in a way. It's true. It's true. Yes, there is certainly in pharma more funding for drug and target discovery. And I think that food primarily being commodity, it's a bit tough to find the funding for that. So again, more engagement from policymakers and support from governments could help there, as well as interest from current food companies. And we see that happening, Tyson, JBS, et cetera, making investments, setting up innovation arms, collaborations between you know, Fonterra and DS DSM. So it's coming, but I think we need much more of that to find those investment and research dollars to really accelerate things. 
Yeah. Mm. But yeah, it has it has the issue of it made me think like, well, why why aren't the food tech uh, food companies uh, doing much more of this biotech research? Um, yeah, but they they don't seem to have as much resources committed to to these kind of efforts. Yeah, and I. I I also can't quote the investment dollars in, in pharma presently. Um, we have seen that in the last year or two on the food tech side, there has been, um, I believe in 2021, um, was it $1 billion or $5 billion total for alternative proteins? It was, it was quite a lot, so it's really shot up that investment. But I believe that still pales in comparison to what is put into pharma research, where yes, you certainly have a longer development time, um, rightfully so, longer um, regulatory cycle around phase clinical trials. However, much higher margins and much greater rewards. So it's this was one of the things that really struck me when I switched over from biopharmaceutical manufacturing into cultured meat with my previous organization was just the differences between regulatory margins and scale are, are quite are quite different between these um, these situations. Situations, and yet, at least on the cell-based side and somewhat on the fermentation side as well, we're trying to leverage pharma technologies to make something that has to, in the end, be at a much greater scale and for a much lower cost. So pharma technology is a, is a great place to start, but we need to further innovate and change the paradigms a bit if we're, if we're going to make this cost-effective and, um, and widely accessible. Okay. If you would have 50 million and you would be able to invest it in a specific technology field, or if you have company crushes, you can also share them <laughs> <laughs> apart from Turtle Tree. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I do have a few, but I don't want to name anyone by name. But um, some areas that I think I've already alluded to, um, to some of this is because it's such a different scale. I think that putting more investment into bioreactor technologies that go beyond what we have on the fermentation side versus the animal cell culture, especially to scale up animal-based processes will be very important. In terms of fermentation, downstream processing is quite expensive. So if there are ways to combine unit operations, for example, biomass removal, and capturing your target protein in one step. I think those would be really interesting investments. And the other thing that companies across alternative proteins are struggling with are access to relevant cells and strains that have a clear path to commercial. So we don't want to start way back from square one and do the five to 10 years of development, starting from a platform that can be then taken in and tailored for any given target product would be a huge benefit to the industry. So if there's someone focusing on that kind of platform approach that they want to outlicense, or that's their various business models to allow others to access those cell lines and strains, or perhaps even in a public way, have public support for that, I think that would be a big advantage. So of course, yeah. Is there maybe one controversy? Is there an opinion that you keep hearing that you disagree with or a controversial opinion that you hold yourself? I mean, there are certainly assumptions in some of the techno-economic analyses that are under discussion. I think having that open discussion is healthy. There were a couple of articles that really question whether or not, for example, cell-based products will ever be commercially viable. So there's a bit of controversy there. And I think that we need to do more work. We need to start scaling up to really test out some of these techno-economic analyses and assumptions. So that's ongoing. But going back to the kind of invest and the money and the transparency here. We really need to open up innovation and rather than being like protectionist around our technologies, 
be a bit more open and willing to share the risk and reward. I'm a little bit skeptical that things are going to advance quickly enough if that's not happening. I don't think that society and the planet can wait for us to all do this individually. We really need to come together and there has to be a bit of a change of mindset. I think also from the investment side as well to make that a reality. Thanks for listening. Check out our first season on cell-based meat or cultured meat and our third season on the consumer acceptance of alternative proteins. A special thanks to Nikhil Menon for audio editing, senior audio editor Celeste Gupta, as well as Robert Griffin for doing a second review. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.